Welcome to the Breaking to Startups podcast, where we interview people who came from non-traditional backgrounds and broke into tech. Today, we have an interesting chat with Chia Lin, who broke in as a product designer at Ayuki. Her story is especially fascinating because prior to diving into product design, she worked as a pastry chef at a Michelin star restaurant. You may have heard about Chia from her blog post that went viral, which was called Five Things I Learned About Design at a Michelin Star Kitchen. Another interesting fact about her is that prior to this experience, she traveled the world as a flight attendant in East Asia. On this episode, Chia shares actionable tips on how to tell your story and use blogging as a way to strengthen your brand. If you're interested in product design or UX design, you should also check out episode number four with Megan Schofield who worked as a museum exhibit designer before breaking into a startup. Enjoy. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timo Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so today we're recording our episode from Hack Reactor. It's actually 9.30 on a Wednesday night. I can tell just by looking around the room, uh, people are a little bit yawning, but we're still awake and we're excited uh, for our guest today. We're about to, again, talk about how to break into startups. And our guest comes from a very untraditional background who did break into startups. And uh, she has an amazing story. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, yeah, sure, Timor. So uh, we're here with Chilin, and you might have heard about her from her blog post that she wrote called The Five Things I Learned About Design from a Michelin Star Restaurant. And she is an artist, and not just any artist. She's worked with chefs behind the kitchen. She is now a designer. She's expanded her horizon by traveling all over the world from Taiwan to Japan, lived on the East Coast to the West Coast, and she's really amazing. She's going to tell you about her journey. So uh, Chia, can, we're really excited to have you. Can you please take us back to where it all started and, and how you decided to start in food, of all things, and then get into the place that you are now? Hey, everybody. I'm excited <laughs> <Hi>. to be here. <laughs> I guess my story starts um, when I was born. I was born and raised in Taiwan. And uh, when I was 11, I moved to Tennessee. And um, for college and high school, I moved to California. And in college, it was when I actually decided discovered that I really loved cooking. Um, in my spare time, I was making food for people, you know, making desserts. I myself don't eat desserts, and I would just make a ton of stuff and make people eat it, force people to eat it. My roommate gained 10 pounds, I think, living with me. <laughs> I already forgot your question. <laughs> yeah, no, you're doing great. So essentially, you know, yeah. you're hitting, hitting it, the nail on the head where you're passionate about food growing up. But tell us a little bit about your family, how mm-hmm. you developed that passion, what you studied in college, and kind of like, how you went from, you know, Taiwan to yeah. all your various places that got you to where you are now. Okay. Food is a very important part of Taiwanese culture. So that, that part is very ingrained in me ever since a very young age. In college, I studied psych and bio. My parents wanted me to be a pediatrician. And after college, I guess ever since I was young, I was, you know, doing food things and also doing art ever since I was little, practicing art, sketching, painting, whatever it is. And throughout college, I decided to pick up graphic design. I worked with, you know, student Bali government and some of the startups around Berkeley 
designing stuff for them. And I just never really thought of that as a career because parents, you know, wanted me to be a doctor, either going to business or going to medicine. But out of rebellion after college, I decided to move to Tokyo because the one thing I've always loved doing besides food and art is travel. So I decided to move to Tokyo, lived there for six months. And for about two years, I worked for an airline and traveled all over the world. When I was traveling... How did your parents feel about that? My parents were surprisingly supportive. For Asian parents, they're quite unconventional. Always very, you know, just laissez-faire about it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what, what were some of the things that you noticed during your travels? Or what were some of the biggest things that you learned while you mm-hmm. traveled? And how long were you a flight attendant? So I was a flight attendant for about two years. And when I was traveling, the one biggest thing that I learned was never make assumptions about people. A lot of the times after you fly certain routes, the number of times you kind of think you know about the passengers who are going to be on that plane. But when they actually, you know, come on board and you do get an opportunity to talk to them, you realize, okay, you're not what I expected you to be. I think there was one time I was flying to San Francisco, actually, and I had a plane full of you know, people I thought weren't very nice passengers and until I actually started talking to them, realized they were all cardiothoracic surgeons at UCSF. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wow. Did they get like extra peanuts because they were nice? <laughs> I gave them the extra drinks because they were nice. Nice. And also if I have a heart attack, they were the one to, to save <laughs> me. So. I think you're already dropping a lot of gems on our listeners. So, <laughs> so take us back. Uh, so you were... Um, traveling uh, Taiwan, Japan. Um, in the pre-interview, you mentioned that that led you to discover more about the food, mm-hmm. about the how the restaurant business is run. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about uh, how you ended up um, kind of getting interested in food. Mm-hmm. For me, when I travel, I really want to immerse myself in the culture. And I think the fastest way to do that is through food. And wherever I went, I was always you know, really interested about what kind of food they're eating, not just the famous restaurants there, but also what the locals are eating. And that's what kind of got me into this food obsession. And after traveling for two years and just eating food from all over the place, I decided that I myself wanted to learn more about the act of cooking. So that's when I started looking into culinary schools. And you asked me during the pre-interview how I decided on the school. I kind of just thought about what is one city or one country where I want to live for the next year or so. And that was my deciding factor. And I decided San Francisco. I've mm-hmm. always loved San Francisco. Never actually lived here. And they have a pretty cool one here. So I decided to come here. That's awesome. How long is culinary school and what was that process like? Culinary school was about four months. And culinary school, honestly, was just all fun. Fun, play, eating. It was hard. But it's a lot of just, you know, crafts and doing things with your hands and getting to eat it afterwards. So the best four months of my life, I think. That's awesome. And do they prepare you for a job search after that? Or is it, are you just on your own with your new skills and friends that you got from culinary school? They definitely structured a class in a way that gets you prepared to the rhythm of a kitchen. They do place you in a restaurant afterwards. That's how I landed my job at Murad. I was an intern there at first. So I stashed there for about six, six weeks. Can you talk a little bit about the rhythm of a kitchen? That sounds interesting because we talk a lot about routines. And was that during the whole program or kind of like what they talked about at the end to prepare you as you got into your maraud, you said, right? Yeah. Since day one, they structured the class like a kitchen. So our instructor was our head chef. 
And then, you know, you're supposed to operate in this kitchen like you would operate in an actual kitchen. So, and the rhythm of the kitchen is really different from, I guess, everyday life. Apart from the fact that it is about 10, five to 10 times faster, it is a lot of routine. So it's a lot of just like mentally pushing through the things that you've done a thousand times and pushing through, you know, people yelling at you, pushing through time pressure, physical pressure. So is it kind of like an assembly line going to a beat? When it's going well, it is like that. So if you have a team that you're really comfortable working with, that you, you know, have good instincts with, that it becomes like an assembly line and you have a rhythm to it, then that's one of the good days, good days of service. When like a more typical, you know, day of service in the kitchen is just things going wrong and nothing looking like they're supposed to. And it's just chaos. Do they teach you anything about interacting with people Mm -hmm. outside of the kitchen? Because like there's a customer service element to food as well. Well, thankfully, I didn't never, you know, and if you're working back of house, you don't really get to talk to the front of house that much. Um, It's up to the front of house and the hostesses to deal with it. At most, they talk to the head chef. And most of the time, it would be something good. Yeah. So it sounds like the culinary basic training was over. And then after the four months, you went into the real world. How was that like? Is that what you expected? Um, Was that easy? Was that hard? Uh, What was your impression? It was hard. I was really scared the first two weeks or so. I thought, so in culinary school, I was actually one of the people who worked the fastest. In the kitchen, I was one of the slowest ones. And I remember one thing that my culinary school instructor told me. She said, if you can't do this fast, at least get there faster. So for me, it's like, if I can't, you know, make this, this parachute fast enough, at least, you know, walk to the walk, walk in like 10 times faster than everybody else. I'll run there. I think, you know, it was just really daunting being in that kitchen the first two weeks because people who were, you know, my, my direct head chef, she had won a She was nominated for a James Beard, which is, you know, the Oscars of the food world. So it was just really intimidating working, working with these people and just being in a really intense environment. But honestly, this culinary school, San Francisco cooking school, did prepare me really well for that environment. At first, didn't really want to go there because the way people talk to you when you do something wrong I think it's something that most people aren't really used to. They don't get used to until a couple months into this, this career. I thought people hated me, but honestly, they were just trying to tell you, you know. Tough love. Do tough yeah, love. Tough love. Got it. And so, you know, how long were you at Murad and what were some of the biggest things that you learned that mm-hmm. at the, was Murad the only place that you worked? Yes. So what were some of the biggest things that you learned while you were there? I was at Murad for about a year. I think the biggest thing I learned while working at Murad is just what it's like. I think everybody I've had the con, you know, everybody I grew up with, you know, went to good schools, came out, either became engineers or, you know, worked in tech. So I think we've always had really privileged lifestyles. And the one thing I learned from Murad is, you know, what it's like to be on the other side. When you're working 12, 13, 14 hours a day and you're, you're making minimum wage, and when you're putting through, putting all your time into a job and not having enough money to pay rent and buy groceries when you, I guess, you know, want to eat out with a friend, but you have to think about it. And it's kind of ironic because you're making food for people right. when you don't have money to eat. Right, right, right. So, you know, all the people who are making Michelin food, like Michelin star restaurant food for you in the back, they, you know, they themselves can't afford to eat that. So it's just, it's just crazy to kind of 
be on the other side and kind of understand, you know, what it's like to to be in the dumps and not be able to buy food because you don't have enough money. Yeah. So what were the things that started to, so outside of that, you know, what were some other things that you learned, some other gems that or something that kind of like pushed you to want to do something outside of food? Or why did you want to stay in food despite, you know, a lot of the th- different things that you were going through while you were there? I think one of the things that made me want to stay in the kitchen was the challenge. I've always been drawn to difficult things. I'm working in the kitchen as mental challenge and physical challenge, creative challenge. So that's, you know, those sort of things that kept me motivated in Emirad. And for the most part, it was a great place to, to work and learn. I think in the end, I decided to leave because it just wasn't really a sustainable lifestyle and it wasn't something that I've always had a passion for. And culinary world is something you need a passion for in order to survive. Yeah, yeah. In the pre-interview, you talked about the conversations you started to have mm-hmm. that started leading you to the next thing. So can you talk a little bit about those conversations and like, any parallels that you made with like good design and mm-hmm. like the kitchen? I think thinking back, people always talk about design thinking, but if, if I guess I didn't know what design thinking was, but thinking back, I did a lot of the stuff that people would call design now because I think from a young age, I've always liked fixing things, which is one thing that a lot of designers have in common. Even in the kitchen, People would tell you, you know, this is how you set up the line. This is how you do things. This is how you plate this, plate that. This is how you make this recipe. But for me, it's always, you know, why is it set up like this? I don't feel like this is the most most efficient way. And I would just change it and try to do it better and fix it. I think when I started talking to some of my high school friends and college friends who are working in tech, they introduced me to UX design, product design. And that's when I realized, okay, well, Design seems to be the thing that I actually really like doing. It's not the food. It's not, you know, flying for an airline. It's design and designing an experience for somebody, whether it's the moment they step on a plane to the moment that they step off or the moment they step into a restaurant to the moment they leave. Designing the experiences. It's not about the food, not about the flight. And I thought it was the perfect thing because design is the middle ground between psychology, art, and problem solving which are the three things that I love. That's awesome. And a theme that we kind of talk on this podcast a lot is climbing their own hill. And yeah. it's very tough when you commit to a goal and you sacrifice and you work super hard to mm-hmm. get to the top of the hill. And then you realize that, hey, there's another hill that's, that I'm more passionate about. And in order to get there, I have to climb down and start from scratch again. Did you encounter that? And how did you deal with that realization that even though you liked food, there was another passion that you... Mm-hmm. There was something else you were more passionate about. And how did you go about going after that? I definitely experienced that with food. I feel like I poured, you know, over a year of my life, a lot of time and a lot of energy into this food, food endeavor. And in the end, it amounted to nothing, basically, other than a good story. And I think a lot of the times, you know, when I think about it, a lot of times when I'm job hunting for a product design job, it's thinking about, you know, the time that I wasted. But when I think about it, it's not time wasted because this food thing, this pastry chef thing got me in so many doors. Just, you know, as a first conversation topic or as just like a thing that changed the way I approach all the problems that I face. Because now I have that as something to ground all my other experiences against. Yeah, totally. And I think you, in pre-interview, you talked about just how the one thing like 
in the kitchen is that you could try new things and you could mm-hmm. make mistakes, but you never want to make the same mistake twice. And so you have to kind of deal with failing and you have to deal with rejection. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that prepared you for the next step in your journey. Mm-hmm. Definitely in the kitchen. I think within my first week, my chef told me to play something. And after I made it, I thought it looked hideous. And then she said, okay, send it out. And I stopped and I looked at her and I said, no, no, no. Somebody's going to eat that. <laughs> and she said, yeah. I'm like, no, that's hideous. And she's like, no, just go for it. And that's just kind of the, the way things are in the kitchen. And I think a lot of people are really afraid of trying things because they're afraid of sucking. But you got to suck the first hundred and first hundred times, thousand times before you get good at something. Interesting. And, and, and like when you tell that, you know, I could I definitely see that, that perspective. Mm-hmm. But it could also be like if you feel that it's hideous, maybe she was just like, well, you know, if you feel it's hideous, then get it right and then ship it out. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So at, at this point, it sounds like you realized that you wanted to climb another hill and uh, you had some friends who were doing UX design, yeah. um, product design. Uh, how did you um, map out what the next step is going to be for you to start going up the other hill? So my friend who was a product designer, she's a UX designer. She actually had gone through General Assembly. Mm -hmm. So I asked her to introduce me to some of the designers that she knew. And I set up times to talk with them, ask them what it was like being a designer, what were the challenges, what it was like, you know, first breaking into into this world. And one of them actually casually mentioned that they had a coworker who went to Tradecraft. And, you know, that name kind of stuck in my head. And I went home and did a lot of research. The website itself actually didn't say much. So I actually went and, you know, stalked a lot of people on a lot of websites to find out who the who the past, you know, students were. And I contacted them. And it seemed like not just a typical boot camp. It seemed like a really good place for you to grow the skills that you want to grow and, you know, possibly transition into mm-hmm. tech. Nice. So what was the application process like for Tradecraft? I spoke with the program director. Nick and then spoke with the, the track leads for product design and then set up a time to talk over the design challenges that they had sent me. Mm-hmm. What what were in the design challenges? I believe mine was to design a food delivery app or something like that. So it's not really about the end product. They just wanted me to explain, you know, my thought process, why I made certain things, certain things, why certain things are certain colors, why I chose the font, why that size, why is it placed there? So basically that I had thought through who I was designing for, why this thing needed to exist. Got it. And so you go through all the interviews, you Mm -hmm. make it in. Mm -hmm. Tell us about day one, how the things were structured and then Mm -hmm. how the experience felt for you. I remember day one we met at the ferry building. And I think there were 11 other people or 10 other people. And we went around in a circle telling each other about our backgrounds, what we wanted to learn the most and what we were, I think, one thing interesting about about you. And just remember going around, listening to everybody's stories. People had either like come from tech, have been designer for decades or was a startup founder. And I thought, shit, <laughs> like, what am I doing here? And, you know, of course, when I talk about my job, people always think it's interesting. But I think I feel like in the beginning, I was really self-conscious about my background because it wasn't related to design or tech. But I think that's the good thing about Tradecraft, this environment there, you know, they get, they're trying to like pound it into you that your background is your advantage. You got to leverage it. You got to figure out 
what the advantage is. And it doesn't matter if your background is like, you know, you were a janitor at an elementary school. Somehow it will be advantageous to you. If only, you know, you knew, you know, what it was. Just spend time to figure out what it does. That's awesome. And shout out to Tradecraft and to Nick. But when they had you going through training in the structure, like what were some of the things that they taught you? Like, you mm-hmm. know, they have whiteboarding exercises for mm-hmm. engineers. What does a whiteboarding exercise look like for a designer? Mm-hmm. Since whiteboard challenges are so common for designers during the interview, at TC, we started doing those during the first week and we do them every Wednesday. And a typical whiteboard challenge lasts you know, anywhere from 15 to 30, 30 minutes. And you basically, you get a prompt that's either, it could be really open-ended or really specific, like design a cat, like an app that can track my cat who likes to go outside, something really random. And you kind of just have to walk the founders through, you know, the entire process of creating this app. First, hopefully you try to understand, you know, their motivations for creating this, you know, what problem they're trying to solve. What is their roadmap for this app, this business? And where are they envisioning, you know, what the success look like for them, for this app, and what does success look like for them working with you specifically on this thing? And then you kind of have to go through, you know, who your users are, um, trying to understand their motivations for using this, what problems are they trying to solve, what times of day are they actually going to be using this under what circumstances. I think a lot of people always forget that you're designing kind of for the nooks and crannies of somebody's life. And, you know, when you're doing a whiteboard challenge, you have to think about that. Think about, you know, timing and what is it? Setting. And then after that, kind of go into um, task flows. And then if you do have time, go into UIs. So actually drawing out UIs on the whiteboard. So during this time, uh, did the tradecraft instructors, did they point you to any resources online? Or how did you learn about all this stuff? So. For whiteboard challenges, we actually did a practice round with the instructors. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of, you know, try to teach you what a good one looks like. And the good thing about TC is that you always have three cohorts in TC at any given time. So it is about teaching each other, learning from people, from people who've been there longer. Mm-hmm. And you're encouraged to practice with older people so you can learn from them. And for someone who is trying to kind of practice whiteboarding um, mm-hmm. at home, what advice would you have for them? How could they similar environment? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe with their friends or something. Yeah, definitely get a friend. And then I believe there probably are some prompts you can search for online. If not, you can just get your friend to think of something, you know, and try to be serious about it and give yourself a timer, 20 minutes. After you get more comfortable, set it to 15. And then a lot, maybe 10 minutes at the end for feedback. And I think definitely do ask a lot of questions. I think one thing that people a lot, a lot of people look for is, you know, you as a designer trying to understand before you jump to conclusions, because that's one thing that's a big no-no for designers, you know, popping out solutions before you even understand what the problem is. Yeah. It's definitely been a reoccurring theme on the podcast when we interview designers. A lot of them have um, advised our listeners to like identify the requirements, ask a lot of questions, make sure you understand the problem before you jump into drawing something on the board or coming up with a solution. And that actually shows your interviewer that, listen, this person is curious. They want to see the whole picture, not just come up with a solution that's going to fit one scenario. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely a great advice. Tell us a little bit more about the structure of the program. Some of our listeners might not have heard about Tradecraft. What is Tradecraft? So Tradecraft is a career accelerator. 
I think a good way of explaining what TC is is think of General Assembly and then don't think of General Assembly. I don't know if you can air that, but think of Pivotal Labs, where it's basically like a consultancy that startups can come to, and you get to work with actual companies who need help on actual problems, on actual products. And there are definitely, you know, product design really experienced designers around to help you if you do need, but. We don't spend a lot of time on curriculum.、Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, it's just you working on these projects with these companies, and you, a lot of times you're just learning on the job, learning through research, learning through you know the resources that they do give you because they do give you a lot of resources. Yeah, I think that's a great breakdown. And when it comes to the job search and things like that, what are some some of the things that you or how was that experience for you when it came to the job search? I feel like nobody can ever really prepare you for the pit of despair that is the job search. I think TC does a really good job preparing you for it, like warning you about it. They definitely don't try to sugarcoat what the job search is going to be like because it is tough. You're in Silicon Valley. There are so many bootcamps out there turning out so many designers, so many engineers, and you're definitely going to run into you know tons of rejection. And I think the first thing you need to do for your own Own sanity is to kind of schedule your day out. You know, actually get out a Google Calendar and schedule your days out hour by hour, and actually follow it. And don't spend all of your time on this job search. You gotta spend time doing the things that you actually like doing. You know, coding whatever it is, doing product design, so that you have something to anchor your motivation towards. So you kind of get a reminder of why you are doing this job search in the first place. Yeah. And it reminds me of something that you wrote about in your blog post about、mm-hmm. internalizing credit. Can you talk about how the parallels that you wrote about? So when I read about the blog post, I said that I think I asked the reader to think about the last time they they thought about the people who created the food that they were eating. And in the kitchen, nobody ever thinks about you. When you have a really good meal, you think the waiter. You don't think the chef. It's only in the really fancy places you try to think the head chef, but. Most of the time, the head chef didn't do anything other than sit there. So I think that's you know, that's the same thing as design. A lot of people say that design is invisible. Good design is invisible. So when something goes right, people don't notice you. People only notice designers when things are going really shittily, or when your servers crash, like Pokemon、yeah. Go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And when you're going through this job search, you're you know internalizing the credits. You're reminding yourself of your efforts. You know、mm-hmm. the work that you did. And how many applications did you send out, and kind of like how many interviews did you get? What was that breakdown? At TC, we like to think of it as like a reverse funnel, and I think I sent out over a hundred, at least a hundred applications, and out of that, maybe like a third、um, turned into phone interviews, and then even less turned into second interviews, and I think I had about five onsites, and then got two offers in the end. So definitely. I think when you're in the routine of applying for jobs, you feel like rejection and rejection and rejection. But you know, conversion rate for cold emails to phone interviews like what one in ten? I don't know. Yeah, making things but, up, but you sent out some cold emails too, right? Yeah. And who did you send them out to? Was it CEOs, hiring managers,、mm-hmm. people doing similar work that you were doing? Usually, so I had a spreadsheet where I had the companies that I wanted to work for, and then. First, I make sure they had job listings, and then I try to look at you know the people that had in common, people who work at this company or second degree or third degree connections, and 
try to avoid recruiting managers. Aim for the hiring managers. Definitely don't talk to recruiters because most of the time they don't really. They have a lot on their plates too. Gatekeepers. But yeah, no. Yeah. And Nick, uh, when we interviewed Nick, you mentioned that you want to have someone on the team that's interviewing you to be kind of your champion. Right. So the recruiter is almost like a facilitator mm-hmm. and the person hiring you or the people that are interviewing you, like other designers, maybe a product manager, they're going to, one of them or two of them could be your champions. And if you can build that relationship ahead of time, then they'll be able to almost explain the story of why you're a good candidate and how your previous experiences doing whatever you were doing applies to the job. So it's it's great to reach out to them ahead of time and build that connection. Because if you just go through the recruiter, she's just going to take your resume and uh, send it to the next guy. Right. So recruiter is always going to view your resume on paper, oh, three to seven years of experience, blah, blah, blah. And if you don't fit that criteria, it doesn't matter if you're actually really qualified for the job. They just, you know, eliminate you from the pool. I actually had this one recruiter do two interviews with me because the hiring manager really liked my portfolio mm-hmm. and had, you know, talked her into talking with me. And I think that kind of just emphasizes your Nick and your point about, you know, having somebody on the team vouch for you. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we actually had a few guests on our podcast who applied to their front door, got rejected, so got weeded out. Mm-hmm. And then they had someone on the inside or maybe had a mutual friend with someone who knew maybe the hiring manager or the CEO or whatnot. And then they were able to get the second shot. And then everyone was like in awe of how amazing they were. Yeah. So it's kind of ironic that you apply through the front door, mm-hmm. what everyone always tells you to do. And then you get told no. And then a week later, nothing changed. And then all of a sudden you become this amazing candidate. So I think it just goes to show that don't yeah. take rejection seriously right. and try to make it as warm as possible. If you can't find someone on the inside, reach out cold email someone mm-hmm. either in your role or a hiring manager yeah definitely so that just shows never take it personally yeah. most of the time they don't even know who you're who they're rejecting yeah so um some of our guests on the podcast they were saying how you need to make sure that your portfolio stands out or your resume stands out when you're mm-hmm. sending it out especially if you're applying for the design positions what do you think made you send out when you were speaking to these hiring managers i think when you're sending out emails to hiring managers or asking for connections, a lot of people kind of just tend to think about my strong points and try to broadcast them to these people. But think about that company and why they're hiring, who are they hiring, and just think about you know the problems that they're they're trying to solve. You're thinking see- like a UX designer. So definitely treat your job search like a UX problem. You know, like yeah. a design, like treat it like a design problem. So think about the recruiter, not the recruiter, the employer's point of view. Like, mm-hmm. What problem are they trying to solve? What role are they trying to fill? And see if you can frame yourself to fit that. And think about, you know, same thing goes for your weaknesses. Think about when you talk to somebody, what are the things that would ring, you know, alarm bells for that person? And think about the ways you can kind of put that fire out. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about the, inter- like the on-site interview process, the interviews that you had? Mm-hmm. And how that was? So a typical um, designer interview would be a phone interview first, a phone screen, and then sometimes a second phone interview. And then you would probably do a design challenge at home. And when you're ready, you would do an on-site to go over this design challenge with, with the team that you'd be working with. Sometimes they do second on-sites, depending on the company. And this process is you know, really flexible. 
small companies may only have two. And I know DoorDash has like seven different steps. Yeah. What does a design challenge look like? Design challenge, it could be redesign their current landing page or design marketing collateral for them. Anything that they that they want, actually. I interviewed for this one company that does data analytics for hospitals. And I had to design a dashboard for their data analytics app. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Sounds like so how do you challenge. go about creating that? Because I'm sure there's things you need to keep in mind, like styles and, mm. I don't know, conventions. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Because I'm sure there might be some listeners going through some design challenges right now. Mm-hmm. So what are the things to pay attention to to make sure you ace that? So it depends on what you're actually interviewing for. If you're interviewing for UI, then pay attention to UI, to the conventions too. You know, good UI practices. And there are tons of materials out there. I'm telling you what good practices are. But if you're interviewing for product design or UX, most of the time they, they want to know about your process, you know, your thought process. So spend more time talking about how you came to these design changes, who the users are, you know, what the problems are, your testing process, how you went through your pain points and decided what was more, most important. Definitely think about, think about things from the business perspective as well. I know designers always advocate for the user, but definitely think about things from the business perspective because it doesn't matter if you have really good design. If the business doesn't exist, it doesn't exist and you don't have a job. Awesome. And in the intro, Ruben mentioned your blog post mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit about it in the pre-intro. Tell our listeners kind of the importance of branding yourself and how just writing this blog post turned the tables around where people were reaching out to you, asking you to interview with them. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's a great point. It is definitely important to brand yourself. I think branding might not be the most positive term of terms. I think just going through your entire history and understanding who you are and what your story is and be able to tell your motivations for doing certain things in your life, motivations for wanting to be in this world, you know, wanting to have this job. So definitely don't, you know, don't think that, oh, this company wants that kind of douchebag. So I'm going to brand myself as a douchebag. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't do that. But just know your story, know yourself well, and be able to tell it. Yeah. And you also mentioned that after your blog post got published and uh, it was going viral on Medium, you had um, several companies uh, reach out to you, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, did that ever end up in any interviews or anything mm-hmm. like that? I actually got three interviews out of that blog post. I have. You know, I had random people reaching out to me, mm-hmm. a designer at um, GoPro, designer who actually ended up at TC mm. a couple of cohorts later that I just found out about now. I actually was interviewing for this one contract job and I didn't know her at the time, but after talking with her and almost, you know, almost deciding to work for her on this project, but I actually accepted a job later. But she turned out to be a, a national best-selling author. Wow. And I was wow. like, whoa. <laughs> so definitely. If you know your story well and can tell it well, people will come to you. Yeah, in the future, you guys are going to co-author your biography. And we'll see this <laughs> legendary designer. And that's awesome. <laughs> awesome. So what's next for you? I just want to get really, really good at design. The good thing about design is that there's no shortage of problems out there to be solved. And once you have design thinking down, once you have the process down, I feel like there are so many things out there you can tackle. Awesome. Great. Well, nice. it sounds like you, you've done a great job in college. You've done a great <laughs> job at culinary school. So I see the track record of whatever you decide to do something, you stick to it and you give it your all and you master it. So I think you're going to do great 
in this design field. At this point in our podcast, we do the lightning round. Mm-hmm. And that's when Arthur, Ruben, and I will ask you a series of questions and um, try to give us short answers, but provide mm-hmm. some strategies, tactics, any resources that you've used to kind of get where you are today. And our listeners will really appreciate that. So with that said, Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So this question takes us back to the basics. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're dropped in a brand new city. You don't know anyone. And you're starting from scratch again and Mm -hmm. you're operating under limited resources. So let's assume that your basic needs are taken care of, but you only have $100. What would you do to start and kind of get back on your feet and kill it? Hmm, $100 and I know no one. You don't know anyone, but let's assume that your basic needs are taken care of. So food and shelter. Okay. Do I I have the same backgrounds as I have now? Maybe take it back to like, a year or two before, let's say. Okay. Yeah. A year or two before. So I would say being a waitress or being a bartender is a very lucrative job. And a lot of people might look down on you, but if you can work nights and get enough money so that you can spend your days doing things that you actually want to do, I think it's a really good transition kind of position to hold. And it gives you time and resources to think about what you actually want to do. So for the beginning, maybe like a month or so, I'd probably do that, save up some money. And then I think making friends is easy if you're at a bar. I think for me, it's always been pretty easy to talk to people. I think I would just, you know, sit at a park, talk to people, go to events, meetups, crash some, you know, tech events, like happy hours or whatever. Made a lot of good friends crashing like <laughs> company happy hours. So <laughs> I feel like most of these are open online, open information. So if you can just like sign up for those for those events, go in, make connections, and people can get you in places. Yeah, awesome. I like it. And we actually had one guest on our show who said that when she moved out to herself, she would actually go to meetups to get free dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if yeah. you do only have a hundred dollars, that's another good way to get some free food. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's take it back to when you were getting rejected from a bunch of companies. Mm-hmm. Or just when you were hitting any roadblocks when people were yelling at you or some sometime when you felt down. Yeah. Was there a piece of mo- of music, a movie that you watched or something that helped you get through that uh, situation, that frustration? And if so, what was that? I think when anyone is going through an interview process and getting rejected a lot, I think their egos get hurt and they feel like they're just you know, not, they don't really have a lot of self-worth and they're not capable, then they kind of feel shy about sharing this problem with their friends or with their family. And I think for me, I was kind of embarrassed at first, being unemployed and not being able to get a job, being rejected places. But I think if you can get over that first hurdle and understand that your friends are not going to judge you, people who actually care about you are not going to judge you. And if you have those people to talk to, it's a huge rock off your chest. And if you really do need it, I think people might be hesitant on giving themselves a break because they feel like they don't deserve it if they don't have a job. But if you really need that day, if you really need that week, take that day or a week and just let everything go and relax because that does wonders for you when you actually come back and have to hit the road running again. Solid advice. Solid advice. So another question we'd like to ask is, having been on this journey at you pretty much climbed up and down the hill multiple times throughout <laughs> your young career. So what is the one piece of advice that you have for our listeners who are thinking about um, getting on this journey? 
just have faith in your abilities and be nice to people. Mm-hmm. Be nice to people, even if you don't think it's. I think just be nice, and eventually, good karma will come back to you. And yeah. I got my current job because a friend of mine decided to introduce me to her aunt who runs a company mm-hmm. because you know I was nice to her, <laughs> and then she decided to intro me, and that's how I got the job. So definitely, just don't think about people. As you know, what can I use you for? Yep. But just be nice, spread good karma, and it'll come back. And people will see your talent, and they'll believe in you, and now you're in. So another question related to the advice question is: a lot of people have certain ideas or views or philosophies before mm-hmm. they get into a process. So was there anything, or what is something that you fundamentally believed before going through this process? Mm-hmm. That you have changed your mind on that now that you've gone through the process. I guess I think the thing with boot camps is that a lot of people, including myself, think if you go through a boot camp, it'll make the process easier when you come out of it.、Um, if you go through a boot camp like for product design, then it should be a lot easier to break into design after you come out. But that's kind of a misconception about boot camps because when you come out of it, you have to work twice as hard to get a job. That's when the work actually starts. Yeah. Awesome, solid. And what is one、uh, resource or a book or online resource that you used to learn about design? So Luke W. His website has everything you ever need to know. LukeW. dot com.、Mm-hmm. Is he a designer? He is a very experienced designer. Awesome, nice. And for our listeners,、uh, if they want to get in touch with you, are you on any social media? What is the best way for them to reach out? LinkedIn, Twitter, yeah, email. Ah,、uh, LinkedIn. Twitter. I don't really use my Twitter much, but LinkedIn. They can email me. They can find me on my website, which is www.chiaislin.com. Awesome. You have a nice design there. I saw it. Thanks. This morning. <laughs> yeah, and we'll definitely include the links、uh, in our show notes. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's super inspirational.、Uh, we're gonna probably have you back in a few months, maybe a year,、mm-hmm. and follow up to see、cool. where you're what you're up、and、to. Ma- but maybe we could record it from your future restaurant. That'd be、yeah. cool. <laughs> Awesome! Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening, and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought in the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for "Breaking into Startups," subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech. Encourage them to sign up to our newsletter, or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.